Jesus, thank you that you're here. Thank you that you're moving and you're active. You are never stagnant. You are never sitting back hoping that we're going to do the right thing so that your ball gets moved further down the field, but rather you're the one at work and you invite us along on the journey and the path that you have and that you're on to renew all things and to bring a new life. And all of us in this room at one point were rebels and enemies against you. And maybe this morning we're even acting that way. Maybe this morning um, there are people here that still are in that state and they don't even know that they're in that state. Thank you that you are a God who can awaken us spiritually and give us new eyes and new desires and new minds to understand and feel and know who you are and what you have for us. I, I specifically want to pray for those who are here who might not know you yet, that you would awaken them to the reality of who you are. Thank you that you are a great God who always does what is good, right, and true. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so Jesus said in the book of Matthew, Matthew 16, verse 18, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, we are a church that we're into church planting. We like starting new churches. If you're ever going across the border and you want to get stuck there for a long conversation, tell them that you belong to a church plant or that you're a church planter. It's hilarious and annoying at the same time, depending how much time you have at the border. But Jesus said, I will build my church. So we aren't the ones that are building the church. It's him. And we're along for the ride. We basically go to work with our dad every day. And if you're like me, when I went to work with my dad, I just made a mess. I threw nails off of roofs. I tried to throw rocks at cars. I was a real hindrance to my dad getting anything done. And yet my dad told me that he enjoyed having me around. I don't know if he was lying or not. But Jesus loves having us around. He invites us into his mission. But here's the thing that we have to understand as we get going this morning. You're not Lord. We gave you an hour extra sleep so that you could embrace the impact of some of this stuff. You aren't in charge. This isn't your church. It's his. You get to be a part of it, but you're not going to have things your way. It's his way. And he loves his church so much that he corrects his church. The Bible actually says a father that doesn't discipline his, his child hates his child. Because we'll just let them grow however they want. Whatever their ambitions are, whatever their desires are, you can be whatever you want. No shaping, no forming. How many of you like interacting with those kids? Sometimes I tell my wife, she doesn't understand, but I'll meet people and I'm like, that, kid never, that guy never got punched in the mouth when he was a kid, right? Because it just, not, not, that's not how you parent. Let me be really clear, this is recorded. It's not how you parent. But there, there are times when you figure out in your neighborhood with other kids who's bigger than you are. You understand that there's a pecking order to things. But inside of the home, parents, we discipline. We don't punish. We discipline into what's right. And Jesus loves his church so much that he corrects his church. Now, this is important uh, as we get going in this text because the Corinthians in this passage we're in were very proud. They were a proud church. We might be a proud church about, uh, I don't know, the room that we have or the way we do something. Uh, it could be misguided pride for sure. But the Corinthians' pride was in something that I guarantee none of you would be proud about. Their pride was actually against Jesus' desires as well. Remember, they're not the ones in charge. They're not the lords of the church. Jesus is. And their pride is against Jesus' desires. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5 in parts of 6 today. So let me start out uh, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. 
It is actually reported, right? Paul's writing this from a distance. It's actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you. Now, sexual immorality, just to be clear, is any sort of sexual desire, movement, action, uh, apart from the way that God has designed sex to be done. You can go back and listen to our podcast on, on September. Uh, we take September and we spend it talking about sex. So you can go back and listen to any of that. But sexual immorality, there's a kind that's reported among you and a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. So non-Christians, they don't tolerate the type of sexual immorality that's going on inside of the church. Well, what kind is it? For a man has his father's wife. So here's what's going on. I'm going to make this really brief because I think you're going to get it very quickly. There's a guy who's regularly sleeping with his stepmom, thinking this is okay. Hey, you do you, right? This is like a first century, you do you. You do whatever you want. Sex is how we want it. And here's what it says. And you are arrogant. You're arrogant. You're, you're proud about it. It's not just that it's happening and you're like, ah, let's not talk about that. You're like pulling him up to share testimonies about what was it like with your stepmom last night, right? It's like really weird things going on in this church. And in a city like Corinth, it's a city like Montreal, very cool, urban, hip, trendy, um, sexually progressive, pushing the envelope in certain realities. And Paul is saying, your city looks at what you're doing inside of the church, and no one condones it. They think you guys are weirdos, not because you follow someone who says they resurrected from the dead, but because they're sleeping with their stepmoms. This is really strange, and you're proud about it. You have this weird progressive mission. You're syncretistic, saying, we like Jesus, but we also want to hold on to what we want to hold on to in the world. We want it our way. Tell me why. Right? And I won't keep going the song. But that's, that's the idea, is I want things my way. I like Jesus, the parts I like him, but the part about Jesus that doesn't let me sleep with my stepmom or do whatever I want in this area of life, I don't really like that, so I take off that hand from him and I hold on to other things. It's called syncretism. I'll let Jesus be Lord over this part of my life, but not over this part of my life. We compartmentalize Jesus. We like him for these things, but for these things, we're the ones that are in charge. And Jesus has a major issue with this. In Revelation 2, the last book in the Bible, verse 19 to 23, you can read that later. But Jesus, some of us think of Jesus as this nice shepherd who sits down on a, on a rock with a little sheep and pets it. And children are coming up and he's just singing kumbaya with them. And that might be a part of the picture of who Jesus is. But that's not full picture of who Jesus is. He is holy. He is perfect. He doesn't play around with sexual immorality. So you can read Revelation 2 later to know more about that. But it's a major issue when we say to Jesus, the one who's in charge of the church, we know better how the church should go. We know better how we should act. We know better what type of representatives we should be for the world or who you are. So Paul, being a, a good apostle who loves the church, being a good pastor, he reminds and clarifies them what the church is supposed to be about. Their mission wasn't to see which family member they could sleep with and be proud about it and declare it and share stories about it. Their mission is supposed to be the one that Jesus is on, which Jesus gave to his disciples just as he was leaving and departing. He said, go into all the world and make disciples of me, 
Disciples that look like me, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. This is a thing for all nations, and I'm with you for that. Some of us think that Jesus is with us for anything we want to do in the name of him. And he says, I'm not here for that. I'm here for what I'm on about. Jesus is on for his mission. Jesus isn't necessarily going to give you your dream job because that's not what he's in it for. It's not about your dream job. Jesus might not give you the spouse that you're really longing for because that's not his ultimate mission. Sometimes we set up expectations about Jesus that are just inaccurate and we're disappointed with him when he doesn't meet our idea of the way that world should be. And he's allowing us sometimes to be disappointed with those things so that we actually get what's better. We get him. We get him. So he goes on in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 and 10. He says, I wrote to you in my letter. We, we know that Paul wrote at least four letters to the church in Corinth. We have two of them. In the, this would be the second letter, even though it's called 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians. But he wrote one previously. That's what he was referring to. So he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. He wrote a letter to them. Hey, don't associate with the sexually immoral people. And they thought that he meant those outside of the church. So they could be sexually immoral inside the church, celebrate it, be excited, but, and, and feel good about themselves because they were doing what they were supposed to be doing in their minds. But Paul is saying, if you don't associate with people outside of the church, how are you going to be a mission? Jesus was known as the friend of sinners. How do you get to be a friend of sinners? You hang out with sinners, and you actually like them, and you hang with them. And it doesn't mean you become like them. Jesus hung out with some of the strangest people in different cultures of his day, and he didn't become like them. They became like him. He wasn't going in and being polluted. Rather, he was going in and bringing cleanliness Jesus actually prayed for us as a church in John chapter 17, verse 15 and 16. He says this, praying to, to God the Father, I do not ask that you take them, meaning my disciples, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That we as the, the people of God, the, the church, we're supposed to be a viable and attractive alternative to communities that are being pushed in our society. That there should be something attractive to the church. And I don't mean coming in here and sitting for an hour and a half, right? This is a very small snippet of what the church is. I mean that we send you out at the end of our gathering to go and live as the people of God, not individuals, but the people of God, showing what it looks like to be a part of God's family in your normal, ordinary life. And as you're living life, it's one of holiness. That doesn't mean perfection. It means that we're set apart, that we're other, that we're being changed. That everything else is slowly rotting away. And the people of God and, and what Jesus is on about is slowly being renewed. This is beautiful. And so Paul corrects them and says, you know, please, please go and hang out with the worst people in this world. Go, go be friends with them. Go hang with them. I think we do a great disservice when we take our, our kids sometimes out of, of environments where, where they can actually be good news. I don't mean that we, we just throw them into whatever, 
but that we equip them and we walk with them and we allow for them to be good news. And sometimes we do weird things as Christians too. We create Christian everything. So maybe you like softball. I don't know. And we're like, well, softball leagues are pretty wild here. So let's create a Christian softball league. There are like 10 Christians in Montreal that like softball probably. So good luck having a league. But the idea is that we create our own thing. We create these weird communes and silos where we do Christian things because we're so afraid of what's going to go on out there. Jesus said, would you go be the light of the world with my authority? Would you go and be my people in that place? Would you go and show that there's something far better that's offered out through me? So then Peter, or Paul goes on and says, but now I'm writing to you in verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if they're guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. So here's the idea of those three verses. Paul is saying, don't associate with someone claiming Jesus, but living in clear, apparent, persistent rebellion. Very clear. Don't associate with one who's saying, no, 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 I follow Jesus. But in their life, it's really, really abundantly clear that they're rebelling against Jesus. And this isn't like a maybe thing. Like, I don't know if this is true or not. This is a clear thing. No one had any questions about what this dude was doing with his stepmom. It was very clear. Paul is saying, don't associate with this guy claiming Christ, but living in persistent sin. So what does this mean? That's what we're going to look at today. And I want to deal with the why before the how. So we're going to talk about what, is it, what does it mean when there's persistent rebellion or sin in the church. I want to deal with the why before the how. Because some of this is going to sound really harsh. I actually was working on this a few weeks ago and I'm like, why did I give myself this text? I assign all the preaching things. I could have assigned this to someone else. And I could have brought the happy message. It would have been amazing. But this is good. This is from God. It's going to sound harsh, but it's actually loving and is in line with Jesus as Lord, not you as Lord. So there are three reasons why we would actually deal with persistent rebellion inside of the church. And the first reason is that Jesus is the Passover lamb. I'm not making these up, by the way. They're all in the text. We're going to see them. Uh, First reason is Jesus is the Passover lamb. Chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, you're boasting. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Talking about bread, right? Cleanse out the old leaven, you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That might be confusing to you if you don't have a high biblical literacy, which is okay. During Paul's time, they didn't have the entire Bible. They had the Hebrew scriptures, which would be Genesis to to Malachi. And and scripture was continued to be written. And Paul was contributing to this. But they would have known the story in the book of Exodus. You probably all have heard of Moses. You know of... uh, the, the people of God's time in, in Egypt, the Ten Commandments, it's that type of story. So what's going on in, in Exodus, uh, hundreds of years before this time, is the people of God are living in slavery in Egypt. So you have Egypt, 
all these people of God who are being enslaved to do hard labor. Jesus, or God, hears um, the cry of the, his people, and he says, I'm going to free my people. They've been in slavery for 450 years. He says, I'm going to free my people. So he sends Moses, who has stuttering problems and can't talk well, to go and be his mouthpiece in Egypt, because God uses weak people to do his work. So he sends Moses in to say, free my people, and the Pharaoh says, no way, I'm not freeing, freeing these people. They're good labor. And so ultimately, this whole series of plagues comes upon the people of Egypt while the people of God are protected from these plagues. And Pharaoh will not let the people go. So finally, the last plague is one where this angel of death is going to come over Egypt, and he is going to kill the firstborn in every house, the firstborn child in, in every house, unless there's blood on your doorposts. And I'm not talking from like a, a fist fight the night before, like, oh, thankfully, you know, Johnny's blood's still on the door from that. Not that. It had to be a blood from a lamb that was slaughtered specifically for this purpose. So by the blood of a lamb put, being put on the doorpost, this angel would come over, see the blood, and not take the life of the firstborn. They would be saved. As he went over those without the blood, they would be taken. Part of this is um, to prepare was that they needed to remove leaven from their kitchens, from their house. And you're like, why? Well, there's practical reasons, but the main reason is because God said so. Sometimes my kids ask, Dad, why can't I do this? And I'm just like, because I said so. And they're like, but why? I'm like, I, I'm going to go back to what I just said a second ago. It doesn't matter. I don't need to give you my reasons. It's because I said so. God is saying, remove the leaven and kill the lamb and I will spare your life. By the blood of a lamb, they were saved. But also, as they remembered this feast, for years and years and years in the future, Exodus 12, verse 15 said, anyone who keeps leaven in their kitchen during this festival is to be cut off from the people of God. This is giving us a picture for what's happening, what Paul is referring to. Anyone who wants to be called the people of God, but yet keeps leaven this thing in here and doesn't remove it but intentionally rebels against me is to be cut off. And Paul is saying anyone who's in the church and wants to be in the church, wants to be part of the people of God, but keeps this persistent sin and kind of gives God the middle finger, they're to be cut off. They're to be cut off. You say that's really harsh, but it's not your church. It's his. He gets to do what he wants. And he loves us so much that he's saying, I want to take care of the rebellion that's in your life. I want to make you more and more holy just like Jesus. Because at one point we were enslaved to sin just like the people of God were enslaved in Egypt. But Jesus died for us. Jesus is the Passover lamb that came and was put on the cross so that you and I can be freed. You're a rebel. I'm a rebel. The wages, the paycheck you get for that is eternal death. But Jesus comes and he dies in our place so that you and I can have eternal life. We can be freed like the people of God were freed. And then in that moment where we're free, the spirit of God begins cleaning out our lives. He begins changing us and replacing desires for things we had before with desires for Jesus. And so what happens is if you're a follower of Jesus and you're living in persistent not, not things you don't know are going on, but things you do know are going on. 
and are, and are either on the side or you're boasting of, and you're just saying, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. It's you taking like this ankle chain, putting it to, to yourself, and then chaining yourself back to Egypt, right? Imagine that happening. No, I'm ready to live free as the people of God, but then you, you're running out, and all of a sudden, oh, I can't go anymore. What's going on? Well, I really liked Egypt a little bit, so I chained myself back there. That would be foolish, but that's what we do with persistent sin and rebellion. We're enslaving ourselves. Real freedom looks like this. It's being unchained from our, our sin and being chained to Christ who leads us into freedom. This is what real freedom looks like. So why do we deal with it? Well, Jesus is our Passover lamb, and he's provided a way for you to be free. It's not like you're helpless. You have hope in him. Second reason is because we're part of Christ's body. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. I'll be really quick on this point. The primary use of, of your body, your physical body, is for the Lord. It's for the Lord. It's not to see how much Halloween candy you can stuff in your mouth. That was a game we played a few days ago. Um, it's not how far you can run or swim or bike or how hard you can hit a ball. It's not, it's not anything. It's for the Lord primarily. This is why your body exists. And our body is, is this illustration and analogy for how we also collectively exist. That we together are the body of Christ. We work together under him. If we had more time, I'd read you Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. That says Christ is the head of the body. He's in charge. Sometimes we don't like what Jesus says, so we try and decapitate him. We say, we're, we like what we're doing. We're not quite sure we like what you're doing. And so let's just remove the head and keep moving. We're no longer a church at that point. We're dead. And, and some churches, that's their trajectory, and you can see it. They move from being alive in Christ and putting up plaques of what God did in their, their building, and now they've become like some, some thing that, that wants to embrace the syncretism of what's out there. And we remove Christ. But we, we want to live under him. And our, our body collectively and individually is headed for resurrection, not destruction. So why are we living sexually immorality or idolatry or any of these things? Because those are things of destruction. And so what happens is as we see our body getting out of step with Christ, we have the authority to address it. We as the body collectively have the authority of Christ to address things that are off in the body. We will suffer as the body because one member suffers. I went on this ridiculously long hike a few weeks ago. Um, and I try and promote it for people. I'm like, no, it'll be really fun. It'll be awesome. Uh, but I got hurt. I hurt my toe. Uh, and it sounds really wimpy. Um, but it was a long walk. And I, doesn't matter. Anyway, my toe got hurt, all right? And I couldn't complete the second day of this very, very, very long hike because of my big toe. And it's still in a bit of pain, but it's okay. I'm getting better. All good. But the rest of my body stopped moving forward to deal with this toe. 
the toe forced the rest of my body to slow down and the body came around what was going on in that part of my body so that healing could come. We examined it. A, a medic looked at it. We made sure it was wrapped up well and wouldn't get sick anymore. I didn't continue to move forward as if that still wasn't sick. I addressed the sick part of my body. That's what we do. You might think a, a mean church addresses sin and rebellion. No, a loving church does that. It's really unkind and mean not to do that. Because it's like, well, just continue hiking. Well, you can get serious damage. You could end up getting trench foot. You could end up actually needing your toe amputated. Bad things happen when you just continue forward, hoping that a sick part will just get better because you're ignoring it. We're part of Christ's body. This is our responsibility. We'll, we'll look at this further in just a minute. But why? Well, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Freedom has been opened up for us. Secondly, we're part of Christ's body. We care about you and about one another. The third thing is that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 19 to 20, which was read for us before, but I'll read again. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. For you, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The same spirit that led Jesus in all of his ministry, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. We walk around sometimes where we feel like the world is on our shoulders. We need to figure out how to make this a better place. We need to figure out how to reach our neighbors. We need to figure out how to love in this way. And the Spirit is saying, ask me, pick me, choose me. Let me do it. I'll do it through you. I'll do it far better than your, than your best attempt will ever be. That we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. I visited beautiful temples before around the world. Temples that are not for the living God. They're like tourist attractions. And you go in, and I've never found God there. Never found God. I've gotten to walk into these temples that claim the power of a deity full of the spirit of the living God living in me. And that's you. That's you. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've submitted to him, then the spirit of God lives in you. And there's power in you. There's power in you, and there's freedom. And what the Spirit of God wants to do is he wants to start replacement therapy in you. He wants to take old you and replace that part with him. It's not just let me help you stop doing these things. It let, me, let me replace that. Right? If you've, ever, um, if you've ever tried to stop doing something, most likely you've found that you've had to replace it. So if you've ever smoked before, uh, maybe you've been one of those weirdos that drive around with a carrot in your finger because you're used to having something while you're driving in between your fingers and so you put the carrots there and then you eat the carrots uh, or whatever but there's a replacement thing that's happening the spirit of God wants to replace our old self with him and our collective body and individual bodies now live to spread his glory everywhere so we don't have to invite people to a to a temple or a building to experience the, the spirit of God that's you. People get to engage with the Spirit of God in their normal everyday lives as they're engaging with you. So, why do we deal with sin in the church? Well, we deal with sin because Jesus is better. He's better than anything else that you're going after. He's better than anything that you desire. He's better than any of the things that you're hoping that little thing you're doing in secret all by yourself will provide for you. Here's the thing. He knows what's going on. 
And he loves you so much that he wants to show himself to you and that he's better than that thing so he can bring you out of slavery to it and into freedom. That you can now live in the light. You can, you can open up. And, and when God created the world, he made humans naked and unashamed. And as we encounter Christ, we, we now can live naked and unashamed. And I don't mean literal interpretation. We're not going to nudist church or anything like that. But the idea is that we don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to hide because my identity is not in what you think about me. My identity is now in Christ. And you're going to get a messed up version of me. But I know that he's going to finish the work that he's begun in me because he says he will. And I know he's going to finish the work that he's begun in you because he says that he will. So we, we deal with sin because Jesus is better and discipline is crucial for helping that process. Now, we're being disciplined right now. You might not feel it, or you might feel like this is discipline. I don't know. But discipline is formative and corrective. So formative is that let me inform you, right? Um, one of our children several months ago decided they were going to cut their hair. And I'm like, did we ever tell them not to cut their hair? We're pretty sure no. So formative discipline took place. Hey, just letting you know, if you ever do that again, um, there will be consequences, uh, and what do you do? I mean, it's already a bad haircut. I don't know what the consequences are, right? As a parent, you figure out like, hey, don't make me stop the car. But I'm so glad my kids have never been like, well, what are you going to do if you stop the car? Because I don't really have that thought through yet, right? You just kind of like say it and hope that, that that fear sets in. But but formative, don't cut your hair. Don't cut your hair. Then there's corrective. If you do cut your hair, this is what's going to happen. So discipline is formative. It informs us of, of what's true, and then we correct when we live outside of what we know to be true. So how do we do this? How do we do this? We saw the why, but how do we do it? First, first thing we do when we see that there's something off within the church, within an individual, is we showcase Jesus. So let's say you were to meet with me, and, uh, and I knew something was going on in your life, and it was really clear. What I wouldn't do is start by, did you know how hor horrible of a person you are? Why are you doing this? That's never how I start meetings. Maybe you don't want to meet with me because you think I'm just loud because I'm angry. This is how we talk at our dinner table in our house, right? Like, this is just baseline for me all the time. But I'll get soft, and I'll say, hey, let me start the meeting with prayer, and let me talk to you about Jesus. And I talk about who Jesus is. And I talk about the compassion that Jesus has. And I talk about how Jesus came for people who are sinful just like you and me. And I spend a decent amount of time talking about Jesus because I want you ultimately to see who Jesus is. See, what, what, if you were to read the gospel accounts of Jesus, Jesus caught people in the midst of their sin. And Jesus didn't say, shame on you. You're disgusting. I can't even look at you. Rather, what we see is Jesus catching people in their sin and them getting changed by him. Jesus caught a woman in the act of adultery. And she leaves, forgiven, sent by Jesus, saying, go, go and sin no more. They encounter Jesus in their sin and they get changed by him. There was a man named Zacchaeus who formalized his, his whole world around his vocation of theft. He was just stealing from people. He meets Jesus, 
And he says, anything I've taken from people, I want to restore it. And it's some ridiculous amount that most likely Zacchaeus was probably saying to Jesus, hey, can I borrow some money? <laughs> because I, I'm going to give all this away back to the people I've taken it from. This is why we start any process of discipline with Jesus. Because sometimes people see it, see him right away, and they're like, oh, how could I have been living for that? I want to live for him. And we celebrate together, right? And it's done, immediate, amazing. Secondly, you need to know that we don't go around flipping over rocks in people's lives. I grew up kind of in the forest. I did have a house, but we were like in the forest. And I would love to go around in the summertime and flip over big rocks because I like salamanders. I like looking for salamanders, and they were under rocks. So I would go flip over rocks, salamanders, and all these crazy things would come crawling out, and I would have to try and catch the salamander. But the, the idea is that they were living under there for a reason so that no one would catch them. And then little Dwight comes along. Dun, 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 I will catch you. I don't remember any salamanders surviving, but I didn't intend to kill any of them either, okay? But we don't go around flipping over rocks in your lives. We don't have a calendar of, okay, here are the 150 people part of downtown. Uh, this week we have time to flip over four rocks in people's lives. So who are we going to go after? That's not what we do. We don't ever, and I promise you this, we don't ever sit around surmising, how are we going to do this? It's not an enjoyable part. We don't go flipping over rocks in their lives. But when, when they do get flipped over, we address them. We don't look away and pretend like we didn't see that. We want to say, hey, what's going on under there? What's happening? Because we love you. A lie that you'll hear is, um, it, actually, there was someone who was part of our church. They're not part of our church anymore. But for a long time, they thought our pastoral staff, okay, there's a lot of us, that they, we were sitting around every week talking about how to preach sermons against her. And I'm like, I feel so bad for you that you've been hearing this lie and believing this lie. We don't have enough time to sit around and like gather the nine guys around and like, okay, how do we prepare this sermon so it's going to go right against everything she's doing. I'm like, if you feel that, that's because the Spirit of God is doing that in your life. He's taking the words that we're saying to generally apply, and he's saying, this is wrong, this is off, this is off. Would you see Jesus is better than these things? So we showcase Jesus. We don't go around flipping over rocks, but we'll address them when we do, when we see things. Third, we want to judge what's clearly sin according to the Bible. Listen, you and I are going to disagree about a whole ton of things. All right? We went through the book of Revelation. Maybe some of you didn't catch this. But we went through the book of Revelation. We had, I think, eight or nine different people preaching through the book. I never once asked, hey, what's your view on Revelation? There's a lot of different views, right? We, we gave room for disagreement on certain things and how we understand this. We, there are lots of secondary doctrines that you and I can disagree about and still be part of the same church. Actually, I think it makes for a stronger church when we are actually sharpening one another with going to scripture and, and talking about why we actually believe the things that we do. So when we come to you with something, we're not going to come saying, I don't know, we're not sure if this is actually what's, what's off or what's on or whatever. It's going to be legit. Like here's the verse, the chapter, here's what's going on, here's what we see. Tell me, tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me what I'm missing. Help me understand because I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm missing something in this. Some people will say, well, we're not supposed to judge. Yes, we are. 
Scripture says this, judging isn't a bad thing. It's looking at something, right? I can go outside, I can see that it's raining, I can see that the sun is out, or I can see it's partly cloudy, and I can judge what's going on. It's me looking. It's not me uh, having a spirit of judgment. It's me saying, oh, that person is wearing a red shirt, and that person's wearing a hat, and that person is wearing glasses. That's judging. It's not a spirit. So we judge what's clearly sin according to the Bible. As we do this, though, we want to ensure that there's not some log in our eye. Jesus talked about um, the idea that we can have a log coming out of our eye, but I'm like looking at someone else, and I'm like, hey, Peter, wherever you are, I don't know, I'll see Vivian, I can see Vivian. Oh, Peter's behind the pillar. Peter the pillar. Uh, but I'm like, hey, Peter, I see a speck in your eye, man. I'm going to come get it. And Jesus is like, if you go and try and get the speck out of someone else's eye with a log, you're going to hurt them along the way, and you forget that you have a log coming out of your eye. Jesus is being funny and saying, deal with the log that's in your eye before you deal with the speck that's in your brother's eye. But when you have dealt with the log that's in your eye, now go and care for your body. Go and care for your brother or your sister. So we showcase Jesus. We don't flip rocks. We judge what's clearly sin according to the Bible. And lastly, we pursue people with grace. We pursue people with grace. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 18. He says in Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother, and presumably sister as well, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, well, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus and Paul are doing the same things. If they won't listen, remove them ultimately. But we don't start there. It's a process. So if this is you, if this is you and this is what happens with you, then there, there's a process that takes place. It's not that I'm going to say, uh, hey, Shayla, I see you in the back. Uh, hey, Shayla, I see this thing going on in your life. By the way, this is completely fictional. This is not me being passive-aggressive, doing pastoral work like this. Very, very quick, right? But hey, Shayla, I see this thing you know, on a Monday morning at 9.30. Uh, I'm going to give you five minutes to think about it. Then I'm going to bring two or three other people with me at 9.35. And if you still don't see it, 9.45, we're going to bring it to the church, have a big meeting Monday morning. Everyone leaves their job, come here. Okay, and then by 10 o'clock, you're out. This is not an efficiency thing Jesus is doing. He's saying, bring it to them. Let them process. Let them pray. Whenever I bring something to someone, I'm like, hey, take two or three weeks and call me up again. Ask me for verses. Here are some books to read. Here are people to talk to to think about it. Like, I want to be for you. I want to see restoration happen. I want to see belief happen. We're going to give time. The aim is restoration, not punishment. That's not it. We're not looking to bring you up in front of the church and say, look at this person and all the dumb things they're doing. Let's all mock and laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Growing up, I was not a Christian. I belonged to a church. I didn't believe. Um, my understanding of who God was, and I don't know where this came from, but was one day if I got to be in front of God, he would take a big screen TV and put it up over my life, and everyone would gather around and they would all see all of the bad things that I did in my life. And they would all laugh. That's what I grew up, my picture of who God is. Some of us think about that in church discipline. So we're scared when this subject comes up. Maybe you've actually had a bad experience where someone misapplied this text. And they thought shame was going to actually change you. Shame doesn't change people. The spirit of God does. 
But here's the thing. It's unloving. It's unloving to let someone keep living chained and missing Jesus. That's unloving. It's unloving to let someone keep being chained to, to sin and rebellion and miss Jesus. So this process is probably many meetings. And the thing is, sometimes when someone is living in, in sin, someone would come to me and say, oh, hey, could you go take care of this? I said, no, if you know that this is going on, you go take care of it. Matthew 18, right? You go address this. You go deal with it. That's what the church is. It's not a pastorally led thing. It's a body that, that cares for the body. But then, if at the end of the day, this person desires to persist in sin and refuse Jesus' word, then we implement Jesus' desire. That's the removal. Removal is actually a validation of what they believe. Belief and action are the same things. Some of you think they might be different, but you always do what you believe. You always do what you believe. We sign a statement of faith saying, I believe in all these things, but how much of them do you actually do, and, and do you allow for them to change you? So removal is a validation of what they believe. You don't want to let Christ be Lord? Okay, here, go and have what you want. That's called the passive wrath of God, giving you over to the things that you want. Jesus always gave the message, repent, repent and believe. Repent means turn from what you're going after and believe. He doesn't, it's not penance. Sometimes you hear the word repent and think penance. Penance is this really strange idea that somehow you pay your way and you do good deeds and you do all these things and somehow God might accept you. That's not it. Repent is I'm going this way and I turn this way. I was believing this and living this way. Now I'm believing Jesus and living this way. That was Jesus' message. He's for you. If you're living in sin, he's for you. He wants to bring you hope and bring you out of that. And he invites the church into his mission. When we talk about removal, what does that mean? Removal from what? Each case requires wisdom. So is it removal from taking communion? Is it removal from, hey, please don't come to our gatherings? Is it removal from all association with those inside of our church? Each one of those is going to require a different wisdom. And I'll just say, uh, as a pastor, we've, we planted the church in 2011, so it's been about 12 years now. Um, we've never made it to the last stage with anyone. We've had over 1,000 people, a part of Church 21, right? We, we belong to a very transient city. So, like, people are here, and they keep moving away. Uh, it's, it's like we have a new church every three or four years almost. During COVID, it felt like every three or four weeks we had a new church. But, but the, the idea is, is um, I've never had this happen as a pastor. where We've had to make it to that last stage with someone because usually what takes place is they just remove themselves. And unfortunately, what happens, and I can't control any of this, is that they remove themselves and then they begin to say, what a, what a hateful church that is. What an unloving church that is. How, how could they address that in my life? It's like, well... Would you say that to your doctor if they saw this growth happening? What a hateful doctor they are because they want to take care of that, that growth. It's clearly there. Everyone can see it. It's probably cancerous. It's not good. And yet that's the thing that gets sewn in. What a, what a horrible church because they, they, they want to go after this. We love you. We love you. 
We want to know what's going on, not because we want to micromanage or control, but because we want to help you be shepherded. And, and by the way, all of the pastors, we're also pastored by other pastors. So, so we too have our lives opened up for other people. We too are challenged. And you can, you can bring something against us. You see something that's off in my life, man, please bring it to me or bring it to someone because we want to grow. What we want to do is we want to keep pursuing people with good news of Jesus. So even as they leave our church, when I, when I see them, I want to engage them with the good news of who Jesus is. And, and I want to offer out restoration again. The fabulous thing about Jesus is he, he talks about, uh, he gives us this analogy of lost sheep. So sheep are meant to be in herds or flocks, I guess. Get my animal terminology right. So you get a flock, one of those sheep leave. Jesus is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. But do you know what Jesus doesn't do? He never like says, oh, you one sheep, let me build a whole thing around you, you poor sheep. How could you have been hurt so badly? Like he takes that one and loves that one and then brings that one back into the flock again. This is the work of Jesus. The, the New Testament knows nothing of just a personal relationship with Jesus. We're a body. We're to care for one another. We're to address the sickness as it comes. And Jesus is for his body. So let me end with this. Jesus has given us a new identity. That if you're a follower of him, you are beloved children of God. That is crazy. Because at one point, you were enemies of him. And Jesus came, he died for you, and rose for you. So you could be called child. Adoption is really expensive, financially. But it's also emotionally expensive and relationally expensive. Humanly speaking, God sent his son to die for you so that you could be adopted into his family. And he didn't come after the good kids. He wasn't like, wow, I got all the really good, amazing kids that always do what I want them to do. He came after the really bad kids, the rebels, and says, I'm going to adopt them so that I look absolutely marvelous and gracious to the rest of the world and to showcase that there's hope for anyone who would want me. But then when we're kids, we get to live free. You don't need to live for the approval of God the Father anymore. You have it. You live from that approval. So we get to live in confession. A regular part of our church is participating in something called change groups, where we have one or two other people that we're close with, and we tell them, hey, I'm struggling with this this week. Would you pray for me, or would you minister to me, or would you um, walk with me in this thing? You get to be naked and unashamed, again, figuratively, not literally, um, but you get to be naked and unashamed with people that are going to give you grace. That's beautiful. Every other community in the world is trying to uh, protect themselves for self-preservation. We're saying we already have it. We're already preserved and held tight in Christ. We get to be free and open. But sin is serious. Sin is serious. So, so expect other people to weigh in on it. Expect other people to, to point out what's, what's wrong, what's going on. Uh, I don't think that we're a, a church that, I haven't heard this, that like people are running around telling people, hey, I saw, I have my list. You know, I've been praying. I have my list of the 10 people I need to talk to this week about all the things that are wrong in their life. That's not it. But as that rock gets flipped over, like, hey, what's going on here? What's happening? And if they get it wrong, you don't need to be deeply offended. People have gotten it wrong with me a lot. I want to be offended. People have probably gotten it wrong with you, and you've wanted to be offended. 
But what we get in that moment is we get the opportunity to forgive. We get to do what Jesus did. We get to forgive them and restore them. We want a culture of forgiveness to be uh, within Church 21. Here's what the gospel does. It gives us thicker skin and soft hearts. The gospel gives us thicker skin and soft hearts. So God's vision for the church is to be holy. It's to be his way. It's the best option. And it's offered to anyone. And so if you're being disciplined or you go through a moment of discipline, which if you're part of the church long enough, all of us will. All of us will. Even if it's sitting down with someone else to hear about how amazing Jesus is and how he's better than that thing we're going after. If you experience discipline, it's because God loves you. You're deeply loved. He's not against you. He is for you. And we want to be a church that works this way as well. Ultimately, he's going to transform you into the image of Jesus. One day when everything is done and Jesus comes back, he will transform all of his people to look just like him. It's amazing. It's amazing. Let me pray for us and we'll respond to this. Jesus, thank you that you're here. Thank you that you love us, that you're for us, that you're not against us. Thank you uh, for this word as hard as it is. Thank you that you love your, your body so much that you would discipline it, you would correct it, you would bring it into uh, life and, and health. And I pray that that would happen in, in this congregation. I pray that you would be um, going after uh, that which is unhealthy. And I pray for people who are here that as they listen to it, they're, they're thinking, oh no, I hope that no one finds out about this. I pray that today would be a day where they can actually go to someone and say, hey, this thing is going on. Let me flip over the rock of my life for you and show you what's going on because they find such freedom in you, Jesus. I pray for those who, um, who are trying to justify themselves and make themselves right before you based on their actions. I pray that you would free them from that pursuit any longer today and that you would show them that what you did, Jesus, on the cross and the resurrection was enough for them to give them a new identity, new hearts, new minds, and bring them into that family and that they're really free because of what you have done. And I pray that we would be a body, that Church 21 downtown would be a congregation that loves one another so much that when we're sure that something is off, we would love them um, enough to, to go after that and to point that out and to, to, to take someone's face and, and fix it toward Christ again rather than taking a face and shoving it into that moment of rebellion. We thank you that you are going to transform your people to look just like Jesus. We need you for the work that you've called us to in this city. Amen.